Hi, Sarah here. This episode of Global Voices is going to be a little different from what you're used to. First, I made it without the help of the rest of the team as part of my thesis for communication studies. So you'll mostly be hearing my voice throughout with a couple of interviewees mixed in. Second, it took a lot longer to put together than a standard episode of our podcast. I've been working on this project for the past nine months. I traveled across an ocean to conduct interviews, and I've put a lot of myself into this podcast. It's become very personal. So I hope you stick around for the rest of the episode. I hope you like it. And as always, I welcome your feedback. With that, for the last time, I'm Sarah Wyman. This is Global Voices, and you're listening to El Tualar. Last December, my parents and I went to Sweden for Christmas. We stayed at my grandparents' house, the house my mother grew up in, and the place where I spent many of my summers as a child. It's a modest brick house at the end of a cul-de-sac where stray cars sometimes drive by slowly, only to find a three-point turn waiting for them a few meters down the road. There's a lawn in the back, and rose bushes, and a row of shrubbery that my grandfather used to keep trimmed to perfection. And there's a little playhouse, too, with real windows, lace curtains, a porch, and a spice rack nailed to the wallpapered walls inside. My grandparents keep wood in there now that all the kids are grown up. You can barely open the front door anymore. I learned how to be Swedish in that house, how to forage for berries in the backyard, how to set the table for afternoon coffee, and how to play filia with my grandfather. My grandparents inducted me into their culture, shared their traditions with me, and made me feel like I belonged, like a big part of me was Swedish, even though I'd grown up in the United States. My relationship with Sweden has become more complicated as I've grown older. Every year, I feel my Swedish slip a little further away from me. I have more difficulty being myself in that language. And I'm more complicated now, too. The Swedish part of my identity feels less like a guarantee and more and more like something I have to keep proving to myself and to the people around me. But despite all that, I still firmly identify as Swedish. When I visit, it feels a little bit like home, and I'm welcomed with open arms. Recently, Sweden has also become home to hundreds of thousands of refugees and asylum seekers displaced by war and conflict from around the world. In 2015 alone, Sweden received 162,877 applications for asylum and accepted the most refugees per capita of any European nation. The Swedish government has been tasked with providing housing, medical care, and provisions for these individuals. But it's also their job to develop integration plans, strategies which will help newcomers to find employment, build social networks, and thrive in a foreign sociocultural environment. To clarify, integration is different from assimilation. Integration programs aim to facilitate a cultural exchange between newcomers and established populations, where newcomers are given the tools they need to succeed in a new culture, but aren't asked to surrender cultural or personal identities to fit the majority's norms. 
Ideally, both cultural groups are learning from each other as this transition takes place, and the society becomes more open-minded and diverse as a result. Assimilation works a little differently. The idea there is less like an exchange and more like a one-way transmission of cultural values. In societies that value assimilation, newcomers are expected to fit themselves into the existing culture, surrendering their cultural practices where necessary. Of the two models, integration generally results in the most long-term benefits for both newcomers and their host countries. Research indicates that societies where successful integration takes place are safer, more fiscally stable, and more egalitarian. Since the Syrian refugee crisis began in 2014, individuals, innovators, community leaders, and entrepreneurs in Sweden have assumed a significant role in carrying out integration initiatives and creating opportunities for interaction between refugees, asylum seekers, and the native Swedish population. This episode is about the work they're doing and the impact it's having on refugees and asylum seekers in Sweden. about the refugee crisis in Sweden is really complicated, and that starts with the distinction between refugees and asylum seekers. When a person flees their country of origin and arrives in Sweden to start a new life, they're what's called an asylum seeker, a foreign citizen who has appealed to the Swedish government for protection, but has not yet been granted asylum, or the right to stay in Sweden by the migration authority. There are a variety of different possible outcomes for asylum seekers whose applications are approved, but most are designated refugees and granted a temporary residency permit. The duration of those permits is usually around three years, but new legislation is trying to reduce that number even further. If a refugee can demonstrate that they can financially support themselves and their family by the time their temporary residency permit expires, they may be granted a permanent residency permit. But before any of that happens, asylum seekers have to apply for asylum and be granted it by the Swedish government. Whether or not they're successful and are designated refugees depends on two things. First, they must provide documentation of their identity, including their name, their age, and their nationality to the Swedish government. If asylum seekers don't have a passport or other form of ID, they can instead present some combination of a birth certificate, family or military registration documents, or a marriage certificate. But the fewer documents an asylum seeker has, the more complicated the application process becomes, and the less likely they are to ultimately be granted asylum. Critics of mass migration in Sweden worry that the vetting process has become too lax, and that individuals who fail to present documentation have intentionally misplaced their passports so as to take advantage of the system and the circumstances to earn asylum in cases where their backgrounds don't warrant it. And that leads me to the second step. Asylum seekers must demonstrate to the Swedish government that they are unable to return to their country of origin owing to persecution, war, or other life-threatening circumstances in order to be granted asylum. This is determined through an interview with an investigator from Migrationsverket, Sweden's migration authority, who asks questions about who the asylum seeker is, why they left their home country, and how they traveled to Sweden. If the investigator determines that there are no grounds for asylum or that the application should be processed by a different country, the asylum seeker may be immediately asked to leave Sweden. But barring that, Migrationsverket will evaluate the interview and the asylum seeker's application and make a decision about whether or not to grant them asylum. That can take a really long time, 
and it's taking even longer than usual now because Migrahundsverket is receiving such an unusually high number of applicants. Their website doesn't state clearly anywhere how long asylum seekers should expect to wait before receiving word, and many of the people I spoke with had been waiting over a year to find out whether their applications had been successful. But the distinction between asylum seekers and refugees isn't just semantic. It directly affects the rights they have in Sweden. On the most basic level, refugees are entered into the Swedish system. Their residence is registered with the Swedish tax agency, which allows them access to Sweden's social security benefits and gets them a social security number, which you need to, for example, open a bank account. Refugees also have a right to what's called etableringsinsatser, which roughly translates to establishing efforts, or programs offered by the government to support refugees in their quest to learn Swedish, find work, and support themselves as quickly as possible. Refugees are therefore eligible to participate in Swedish for Immigrants, or SFA, the government-operated Swedish language learning program that's free of cost to immigrants, and they have access to resources like an orientation to Swedish society, basic career preparation, and validation of their qualifications, including education and work experience. It's not a bad setup. But if you're not yet a refugee, if you're still awaiting word on your asylum application, you don't have access to that awesome welcome package. That isn't to say asylum seekers are just left to fend for themselves while the bureaucracy meanders its way to a decision, but things are certainly more complicated. As far as work is concerned, there are legal pathways for employing asylum seekers, but as you may be coming to expect by now, they lie at the end of a long trail of convoluted paperwork. Buckle your seatbelts, and I'll explain. First, asylum seekers have to obtain evidence that they are exempted from the working permit requirement, since they can't legally obtain working permits until they've been granted residency permits. Once they've acquired what's called an ATA-UBINDIA, they're eligible to be employed. Employers are obligated to submit a form communicating the contract to the relevant authorities and must complete an additional form to notify them when the employment is terminated. Asylum seekers also have to acquire what's called a SAMORDNINGSNUMBER, which is basically like a stand-in for a social security number from the tax agency so as to pay taxes on their wages and qualify for benefits. There's a lot of steps to that process, and significantly, many of them require potential employers to invest time and resources into helping asylum seekers get the support they need to qualify for the ATA-UBINDIA and submit all the necessary paperwork for legal employment. Plus, it isn't the most streamlined system in the world. One has to navigate a lot of subcategories, exceptions, and if-thens to arrive at the correct approach for any given individual. It's not a one-size-fits-all kind of system. I spent almost a full day toggling back and forth between Migrahundsverket's website and the homepage of Sweden's labor office researching this issue. I drew several diagrams on scratch paper, and I still have a hard time wrapping my head around every part of this process. Mind you, I'm fluent in Swedish. I'm very close to having a college degree. I have steady access to a computer and a strong internet connection, and I have the kind of time a person needs to spend hours clicking through all the tabs on Migrahundsverket's website. This doesn't bode well for the vast majority of asylum seekers. But there is some good news. Sweden does provide protection and services to asylum seekers while they wait things out. 
they're entitled to a range of subsidized health care options, including emergency health and dental care, as well as maternity care and preventative medicine. And asylum-seeking children are guaranteed the same free access to health care and dental care as other children in Sweden. Migrationsverket is also responsible for providing housing for asylum-seekers. When they first reach Sweden, asylum-seekers are housed in temporary arrival accommodations until they've submitted their requests for asylum to the government. Under normal circumstances, they would thereafter be moved to apartment-style housing owned and operated by Migrationsverket. But in light of the massive numbers of applicants in recent years, Migrationsverket has been forced to outsource housing to privately owned companies, including hostel and hotel-type enterprises. During peaks of the 2015-16 refugee crisis, even this supplementary housing was not enough to meet demand, and some asylum seekers were moved to emergency and evacuation housing organized by municipalities, including gyms, schools, and military barracks. And that is how about 200 refugees and asylum seekers ended up in my mother's hometown, a rural municipality of almost 7,000 people. And do you like Utvidabari? Yes, so much. It's a little boring sometimes. Yeah, I get that. But I can keep busy with different things. For example, to study and meet friends and all sorts of things. It's nice place, beautiful country, little people. Uh, it's nothing, it's just... Uh, See movies sometime. We meet with friends. Simple life. I spoke with five refugees and asylum seekers living at Stadlet, a refurbished hotel in central Tidabari. Mind you, it isn't exactly a bustling city center. The lobby at Stadlet reminds me of a summer camp rec room. It's big, poorly lit, and populated with floral patterned furniture. There are people sprinkled about the room, talking on their phones, playing cards, and accessing the internet on their smartphones. The volume of conversation never rises above a quiet hum. On the wall, there's a sign-up sheet written in broken English advertising a Swedish course for beginners at Aktivitetshuset. There are 18 people signed up. The class is full. And maybe that has something to do with why all but one of the refugees and asylum seekers I spoke with taught themselves Swedish using online resources, and YouTube in particular. Yes, I try to learn some Swedish, but it's hard because I, I search in YouTube or sometimes in Google. I teach myself by myself. Yes, I have a opportunity to, to learn Swedish. For me, it's hard because we have contact all day with Arabic people, not with Swedish people. Little bit, but you know, I'm talking English, so it's been harder for me to learn Svenska. I trust my English, so I don't know why. There is some courses here mm-hmm. with the camp, but I'm lazy to go there. So uh, I am sometimes use some application. It's called Duolingo. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, but even I don't put five minutes time for Duolingo. Not with the app, with the bird. <laughs> Mahmoud, who looks to be in his early 30s, came to Sweden from Syria 10 months ago. 
He used to be a captain in the military, but since teaching himself Swedish by watching children's movies on YouTube, he's found work as a translator at Stallet and at language courses in the surrounding area. It was mostly with YouTube that I watched Swedish movies, and I started to level up little by little. I started with the kids' channel, with kids' movies. I leveled up a little, a little. It has gotten a little harder, harder and harder until I started to watch movies without subtitles. I spoke with people on the street and here and there and everywhere. And so I was really curious that I wanted to teach myself something. And it was worse that I didn't have any other language. For example, it was only my native tongue. So I had to teach myself something, a different language that I have to use. And that was Swedish because I live here in Sweden. The first time, I was a little shy, and I was a little... to, like, have a quiz on my pronunciation. Sometimes I'm shy about that, too. No, afterwards, yes. It's okay. Yeah, it's easier to just talk sometimes, like a conversation. It won't kill you. (laughs) How did you find this job? I mean, it's the boss that lives here who is responsible for this housing facility. Her name is Anna Lid, and she knew that I speak pretty good Swedish, and she suggested. She suggested to Gunnar that he spoke Swedish so he can help. So that's how this came together. And had Gunnar discovered that I know how to do a lot. So he said that we can continue together. Mahmoud speaks Swedish almost as well as I do. And still, he's been waiting 10 months to hear back about his application for asylum. Even if deepest down, I don't think we can accept 100,000 people every year for 10 years. I mean, that's 1 million people. And when we don't even have housing for our own youth, of course we have to help those that do come here, though. We can't just let them be there and not take care of them. So, therefore, I'm volunteering my support because I think we owe them that. But it shouldn't just land on our volunteer organizations and volunteers to do that. The state has to do more, too, and above all, the communities. That's how I see it. That's Hans Ölvebro, a retired police officer and the current president of Utvidabari's Red Cross. He, along with Lars Myggan Kalfors, a local pastor, have been leading integration efforts within the community since Migrationsverket announced that around 200 refugees and asylum seekers would be coming to Utvidabari in 2014. The municipal government received only two days of warning before the first asylum seekers arrived, and the city council chairman resigned in protest. The burden of welcoming the incoming asylum seekers, mobilizing community resources to provide necessary aid, and creating opportunities for integration fell almost entirely on community leaders like Hans and Miggan. Yeah, I guess you could say if they're here, they're here. And if it were to rag on our municipal government when the refugee housing at the Hotel Stallet started and 150 people came, the municipality boycotted, didn't do a thing for a year. The only ones who were there were us and the Red Cross. We were the only ones who cared. And they said it then, they're here, they're people. You can't just... 
But I have to say, even the people of what Vidaberg came through, for example, we were collecting clothes for the winter, and so many clothes were dropped off that it couldn't accept anymore. Several years' worth. Hans and Miguel run a variety of programs for refugees and asylum seekers in Ultvidabari, including biking and swimming lessons for children, field trips to the fire and police station, integration with the local scouting troop, and language learning programs. In addition to volunteering with SFE, the Swedish language acquisition program for refugees, Hans and Miguel oversee a weekly language cafe in the church where Miguel is a pastor. I remember the first time they had, when Stellet had started, and then we were there, and we were going to start up this language cafe, and the first Tuesday, I think it was, everybody came, and I mean, there was everyone from tiny babies to these elderly people, so that everyone was inside the restaurant, plus there were maybe like 15 or 20 Swedes. Yeah, it was chaos, if I say so myself. It was chaos, all right? Talking about being tired in the head afterwards. I mean, then you had to, sitting around a table there, and you had like 10 people who were supposed to try and teach. Yeah, it can still be really fun. And there, when there were a bunch of Somali women who came for a while, and they had a really hard time learning numbers in Swedish, pronouncing them. And then when we were practicing and they were supposed to say the numbers and they really struggled with seven and they were laughing their heads off. For our non-Swedish listeners, seven is spelled S-J-U in Swedish and pronounced hu. I can just imagine a group of women sitting around a table all trying to say hu in a circle. What a ridiculous word. What a ridiculous language. And I especially remember family that came from, where did it come from again? I think it might have been former Yugoslavia or possibly Kosovo. And they came here, husband, wife and child. And then she was pregnant and when she came too, so now the kid was born later. And uh, yeah, then they spoke a fair amount with her because she'd come in to study Swedish and English too. And they hadn't gotten satellite TV. They didn't watch TV from where they came from. They only watched SVT so they could learn Swedish. And the man, he was a tiler or a bricklayer or something like that we have very few of in Sweden. I guess there aren't as many people who know how to do that nowadays, so he got a job right away. And then they really settled down. They didn't live here anymore. I think they live in Linköping or somewhere now, but it was really successful. And in that instance, we were able to help out in a good way too. I asked Hans and Miguel what they need. What kind of resources would make it easier for them to continue doing the work they're doing? Yeah, we don't need money, but we need people to step up and volunteer like Miguel does. More eldsjälar. Yeah, mentors, you could call it. Yeah, we could use more eldsjälar. The Swedish language uses fire as a metaphor for passion. Like, if you were really passionate about something, say, a sport or an activity, I might say that du brinner för det, or in English, you burn for it. The word Miggan uses here, eldsjälar, doesn't have a direct translation in English. Literally, it means fire souls, but more abstractly, it refers to a group of people who are incredibly passionate about something, who 
dedicate themselves wholly to a cause or an idea. I can't think of a better word to describe the thousands of community leaders, innovators, and volunteers in Sweden who have adopted refugee integration as their cause. This isn't the first time Sweden has found itself on the receiving end of a refugee crisis. In the mid-80s, Sweden accepted large numbers of asylum seekers from the former Eastern Bloc countries as communist oppression fell apart. Then, in the 90s, the breakdown of Yugoslavia created a second wave of mass migration, and over 100,000 refugees and asylum seekers from former Yugoslavia and Bosnia emigrated to Sweden. But the Syrian refugee crisis has been fundamentally different for two pretty obvious reasons. First, the number of people seeking asylum is just much bigger. 160,000 people sought asylum in Sweden in 2015 alone, and the total numbers since 2014 are well over 300,000. But this crisis is also different in that it's taking place in the 21st century, and we have new tools at our disposal to address the challenges resulting from a sudden influx of mass migration. Yeah, I heard about this Tikifuji thing, because I'm also passionate, so passionate about this refugee crisis. I felt I have to do something, and I heard about them, and uh, I joined uh, them as a volunteer. That's the voice of Ghassan Amira, one of two volunteers in Sweden for the organization Techfugees. Techfugees is an England-based nonprofit concerned with coordinating the international tech community's response to the needs of refugees. Volunteers like Ghassan work in almost 30 different countries around the world to organize hackathons that bring together local and refugee populations to brainstorm tech solutions to infrastructure, education, identity, health, and inclusion-related issues affecting refugee communities. I'm still, you know, thinking, you know, how the technology can help them to better integrate into society and um, how many refugees were engaged in the development of these, you know, applications. Mm -hmm. So it's a question. And it's important to hear from them what kind of, you know, what they need, not to ask, you know, people who are not in their shoes, you know, to develop something. Techfugees organized their first hackathon in Sweden last November, and about 40 people attended the event, including a team of four refugees. The teams were tasked with developing augmented reality software to make daily life easier for refugees and asylum seekers in Sweden, and they came up with some really interesting concepts. One team designed an application that would differentiate halal products from non-halal products at Swedish grocery stores, and another team brainstormed an application that would use geolocation software to identify nearby buildings, services, and landmarks as a person walked around town. But Gassan is also realistic about Techfugee's limitations. To somehow, you cannot say, you know, technology is the magic solution yeah. for that. So I see it from the perspective to engage the locals. Gassan doesn't think techfugees or other technology-based initiatives developed to provide aid to refugees have the capacity to resolve the refugee crisis. It's obviously way too complicated and political for that. But the kinds of apps people are designing at Techfugee hackathons have the potential to improve others' lives, to make at least one thing a little easier in a landscape of monumental challenges. And the gesture is important in and of itself. Techfugees creates a space for a community of people with shared interests to unite in an effort to improve their society. It's an opportunity for refugees and asylum seekers to take a shot at tackling the problems they face with the wholehearted support of their neighbors. And that's worth something. 
Do you work here in Otsuidabari? I mean, I didn't get a residence permit. So my background is actually more in corporate business. I've worked in management, consulting, and finance, and I thought it was a little... My last employer wasn't exactly what I wanted. It felt like it was a little too, you know, within the finance branch. It's a little too cutthroat. At the end of the day, when you go home, you don't really feel like you've contributed to anything. Yazan Al-Rais is the business development manager for Just Arrived, a tech nonprofit dedicated to getting newcomers into the Swedish labor market. They want to make it easier for refugees and asylum seekers to find work, and easier for companies to hire them. <laughs> so everybody loves to use this example, I hate it, but it was supposed to be like Tinder for matching companies and newcomers. But I saw the problem in that. If you have the company here and the newcomer here and we're in the middle, and the company goes in and posts a job, and the newcomer searches for the job, and they look through it, and yeah, it's good. Is it Mahmoud or Ahmed or Sarah I want today? The problem is, who in the company is going to do that? Is it going to be HR? Is it going to be the boss under whom the person will be working, or what? They thought it was too tedious. It was, too. Nobody has the energy to deal with that. That's how it is in the end, and that's what you keep coming back to with the tech sector. You think, ah, oh, this is going to change things and make things easier. But the actual flow there is making things harder. So I think you need this philosophy. Nobody's going to have the energy to deal with this. Yazam knows the rules and regulations governing the employment of refugees and asylum seekers inside out. And that knowledge is what's made Just Arrived among the most successful refugee tech initiatives in Sweden. They're an incredibly valuable resource for both refugees and companies looking to fill positions because they have the manpower and the know-how to navigate what I think we can all agree is a deeply complicated and arduous process. Yazan walked me through the design for Just Arrived's new web portal. Every step of the process is incredibly specific to the needs of employers and potential employees. I can show you. Now we're working on building. Just arrived. It's really simple. Here a little company information for a new company. Who are we going to hire? Or what will they be responsible for? And language, skills, jobs, how many people you want and when the person should start. And then a short description. I tell the companies, be tough. You shouldn't expect to get someone who can write novels in Swedish. But if you want someone who speaks good Swedish, tell us, because we have them. But don't say that the Swedish language isn't needed, because then we send you somebody who doesn't speak any language, and then you say, what the hell did you just send us? So be clear about your requirements and be tough, but at the same time, don't expect gigantic things. And then Just Arrived scans through their database of candidates, looks for a qualified match, and initiates the hiring process. Just like that, a newcomer is employed in a real Swedish company with benefits, growth potential, and the beginnings of a network. And it's all on the books. So the black market is huge in Sweden for newcomers, especially in Malmo. I think it's bigger than the normal one. And that's also something we want to break with just arrived, is that when we look at a person, he, it's usually a he, when he comes into the country, often the only possibility is to work at a restaurant in two, three, four, five years. And then that person, after a long period, he gets stuck in that branch. 
So when he saved up some money, what is he going to be able to do? He can't start some new tech firm. He's going to start a new restaurant and hire more people in the same way. That's what we're looking at. If we say this person who actually has a high level of education, if we pick him out before he gets stuck in that market for 25 kroner an hour and put him in a real company, he's going to be able to find himself, the self-confidence, because often it's that he has rights. He recognizes, shit, this is how I work in a Swedish company with people who treat me like I have worth. I get a salary that's okay, it's not high, it's not too low, and so on. Then he can also start thinking about, I want to work like this, I want to contribute to society. So then he pays taxes, and then there's a net gain to society in the end. We've gone further and further away from saying employ newcomers because that contributes to integration, and instead said hire newcomers because they contribute to economic good or economic gain, or so that you raise your office's productivity. Integration is a two-way street. It requires investment on the part of newcomer populations, a real effort and desire to discover and understand Swedish society. But native Swedes have to create spaces where that's possible. They have to let newcomers in. Sometimes I think that transaction is interpreted as charity or conducted from some moral high ground. Like here, I'm going to be nice to you and welcome you into my community because I'm a nice person and that's what nice people do. But it's much bigger than that. The reality is that everyone benefits from successful integration, and communities where native and newcomer populations work side by side and are valued equally as productive members of society are stronger, stabler, and more constructive. The sooner refugees and asylum seekers can start checking off some of their most pressing needs, like finding a safe place to live, making sure they have the means to care for themselves and their families, and achieving even a basic level of stability, the sooner Sweden can start moving towards that vision of prosperity for everyone. And making sure refugees and asylum seekers can find work is an integral part of that process. How did you learn Swedish? I play soccer and practice with my friends. They speak Swedish and we... and it is how I learn myself. The Swedish people, really great. Yeah, they're pretty sociable. I mean, not everyone is. You can't say that everyone is that way, but the most that have, they are that way. The lag in Migrahundsverket's asylum application processing has meant that refugees and asylum seekers are spending more and more time in temporary housing facilities before being assigned to permanent living situations by municipalities. That's bad news for integration. First of all, because they have no say in where they're ultimately told to settle down, refugees and asylum seekers can't really start to take root in Swedish society before Migrahundsverket has reached a decision. Then there's the temporary accommodations themselves, where hundreds of refugees and asylum seekers are living with other refugees and asylum seekers. Not an ideal setup for cultural integration with the Swedish population. When I was in Sweden last December, the temperature never rose above 40 degrees Fahrenheit, the weather would shift gears on the turn of a dime, and we were working with six hours of daylight tops. It was cold, it was rainy, and it was really, really dark outside. It was Sweden in winter. And it's not hard to imagine how all of those factors combined might produce a really lonely and isolating atmosphere for a newcomer in Sweden. In that situation, 
It would make a huge difference to have a link into the surrounding community, a ready-made friend who could help you feel at home in a strange, inhospitable climate and gradually introduce you to a larger network of people, experiences, and opportunities. As it turns out, there's an app for that. We've been around since 2000, the middle of 2014. Linda Kaplan is the operative leader of Compispiron, a nonprofit organization that uses an online interface to match newcomers with established Swedes. By total coincidence, Linda also happens to be from my mother's hometown, a fact we discovered about 10 minutes into our conversation. In December, when I was in Sweden, I visited where my mom grew up, in um, Utidabari. No! I'm from Utidabari! This is crazy! What's your mom's name? <laughs> Back to business. We're a pretty new organization still and founded by two girls who, yeah, we who wanted to make integration simple and accessible to everyone in Sweden. And what we do is strengthen unity throughout the society between new and established Swedes. And we do that through creating everyday interactions or interactions in everyday life between people with different backgrounds, experiences and different cultures. Their jumping off point is a sacred Swedish cultural tradition. You should try the Swedish fika. Have some coffee up in your coffee cup. Everybody have a Swedish fika. Fika is a daily ritual in which coworkers, family members, or friends get together to enjoy a cup of coffee and a kanelbulle, or a cinnamon roll. It's like Sweden's alternative to a Spanish siesta or English tea time, a culturally mandated break in the day, a time to decompress, refresh, and enjoy a delicious pastry. Combining integration activities with fika is sort of a genius move. Swedes aren't known for being particularly warm or effusive, especially around people they don't know. When I was a kid, my mom used to joke that I shouldn't smile at strangers when we were walking around in Sweden because people might think I was a serial killer. So you can imagine why it might be hard for a newcomer, who already sticks out like a sore thumb, to just go out and make friends. Just by attempting to do so in a normal social setting, they would be breaking a whole host of cultural norms. But by connecting newcomers with established Swedes over Fika, something they'd be taking time out of their day to do anyway, Kompispiruan sets up an interaction that might otherwise be tense or awkward in an environment where everyone can be relaxed and really get to know each other. And what I think is so great about Kompispiruan is that it's a simple alternative. It's a pretty low threshold if you've thought about. Well, yeah, meeting new people and contributing to integration in Swedish society, then you can easily put in an application with us. You don't tie yourself to it for six months, meet someone six times or once a month or anything like that, but try it. Apply here, meet one time, one hour for fika or for a walk. It's supposed to be simple and fun to meet a new friend. It's simple and fun, but it also feels normal, like a couple of friends hanging out and talking about things that interest them. And the importance of that shouldn't be understated, because casual everyday interactions between newcomers and established Swedes can be hard to come by. This is especially true for refugees and asylum seekers living in temporary accommodation facilities like Stallet in my mom's hometown. By virtue of their living situation, they're all grouped together in one place, visibly separated from the rest of the community. 
And on top of that, nearly all of their social interactions with locals take place as part of organized integration activities, where Swedish members of the community are there as do-gooders and volunteers. I don't mean to undermine the value of these efforts or the generosity of the people who participate in them, but it's important to note that they're not producing organic social interaction between newcomers and established community members. And, in some cases, it might be hard to reach a point where these types of exchanges translate into actual friendships, because the people involved didn't get to know each other on even footing. Social apps like Kompispiron strive to frame meetings between newcomers and established Swedes as meetings between people, instead of charity cases or pity parties. I also think it's important that we work for equality, that it's not just about the newly established Swedes' background, whether they've been fleeing or whatever. That shouldn't be the focus, but we should be on equal footing. There should be questions, I think, that fit both people. Newcomers and locals are meeting and talking isn't just important for newcomers who feel alone. It's also important for combating prejudice and fostering understanding. Laura DeClerc is the user success manager for Welcome, a Stockholm-based movement which leverages mobile technology to combat Swedish norms that stand in the way of integration. Specifically, they're looking to do away with lagom, a Swedish word which means enough, and a concept which they've expanded to represent complacency in Sweden. Their mission is to inspire Swedes to do more, to abandon the status quo and go out of their way to make others feel welcome. And, as Laura pointed out to me, that won't happen if integration is hard for its participants. Their slogan sums it up nicely. Have a big heart, they say. We say, eh, just answer a question. We lower the threshold for newcomers to pose questions or contact someone regardless of their language level or origins. And the same for Swedes, who might feel a little bit hesitant about contacting newcomers. 54% of Swedes express interest in helping newcomers, but only 5% do so in the end. Therefore, we've lowered the commitment barrier so that more locals want to participate in this. So they can, for example, chat with someone new in Sweden on their way to work, etc. These everyday interactions help newcomers to feel more at home and supported in Swedish society. But they also contribute to integration in a more concrete way. We wanted to find a simple way of connecting newcomers with local Swedes since we saw that a sense of community was missing and many were very lonely. Many newcomers spoke no Swedish after a year in Sweden, and many had difficulty finding work even after eight years in the country. Since seven out of ten jobs are secured through contacts, it quickly becomes clear that not knowing anyone is hugely limiting. We match newcomers with people who have the same interests, education, or profession. Some hope that in the future these contacts could function as references. The concept behind Welcome's app is pretty simple. If you've got a question about Sweden, Swedish society, or if you're just in the market for a gym buddy, you can post in the app and other users will respond. Welcome is also big on moving conversations outside the app. For example, in mid-December of last year, they hosted a big event in central Stockholm. About 900 people showed up, and it succeeded in getting newcomers and established Swedes interacting in the same room in a fun, casual setting. One of the advantages of relying on the tech industry to mediate integration efforts is that it's an industry that's designed to be responsive to feedback. Welcome is especially forward-thinking and relies continuously on feedback groups to make changes to their application. 
We have two Facebook and test group communities, one for newcomers and one for locals. Before a new function goes live, we first test it with our beta testers and get their feedback about it. Then we also have a newcomer ambassador group. We ask them constantly for feedback too. Most importantly, because they tell their friends about welcome and get more honest answers. Social apps like Compispiruan and Welcome have a lot going for them. They make integration easy and accessible, they serve the needs of their users well, and they normalize interactions between newcomers and established Swedes. But the real asset behind these initiatives is the people who made them happen in the first place. Eltualana. Over and over, in my conversations with the people working closely with refugee integration, I heard passion, commitment, and hope. Eltualana are passionate about helping refugees and asylum seekers. They're committed to ensuring that all people in Sweden, regardless of where they came from originally, are treated fairly and given the opportunity to succeed. And they're hopeful. They believe wholeheartedly in a future where asylum seekers and refugees contribute to Swedish society, where people can learn from each other openly and honestly, and where ultimately, communities grow stronger, safer, and more diverse as a result. Eldhualana are proof that it's possible to respond to a difficult situation with optimism, that individual actions can make a huge difference in others' lives, and that Sweden's capacity for empathy and inclusion outweighs its tendency to revert to lagom. It's a little scary when you think about it, but after the terror attack that happened in Stockholm some three weeks ago or however long it's been, there's been an extraordinary amount of love, I think, between people. And I think it gives so much hope because it supports the idea that the majority wish their fellow human beings well. We're all here on this earth and have to fight together. I mean, it's important because there are Swedes who think that you have to see the world the way they do. Otherwise they get mad and there are, of course, immigrants who are really strict about it has to be this way otherwise. And then you lock yourself into different ghettos. And I think we would benefit much more from daring to have conversations surrounding values in the first place. I mean, I really think some refugees are going to help us. We'll have no choice but to adapt. At its core, integration is about identity. For newcomers, it's about figuring out how you fit into a new culture and how to adapt to that without letting parts of yourself go in the process. For native populations, it's a crisis of identity. If you come here to Sweden, with your new ideas and your new culture and your unfamiliar traditions, does that make mine worth less? If I open my home to you, will it belong less to me as a result? If I let you share your culture with me, will I forget who I am? Will I fall out of my own identity and into some kind of multicultural no man's land? Those are scary questions, really existential questions. And sometimes it's easier for people to just ignore them and keep busy with their own lives than to participate in intercultural exchange and get closer to the answers. But that's where Eldhualana come in. Sweden and the world need more people who are passionate about supporting each other and creating avenues for others to do the same. 
And to the extent that online technology can be used to foster constructive social environments for the exchange of cultures and ideas, it should be implemented as a tool for integration. I've thought a lot about what it means to be Swedish recently. My grandfather passed away while I was working on this project. And on some level, losing him helped me to understand this issue better because it forced me to reevaluate my own identity. In doing so, I realized that my mother and my grandparents have been helping me to negotiate my cultural ties to Sweden since I was born. In a way, I've been integrating this whole time, discovering what parts of me fit into Sweden and what parts of me come from somewhere else. And so much of that understanding, so much of who I am, was built by who my grandfather was and what he taught me about being Swedish. I don't know how my grandfather felt about the refugee crisis or refugee integration or even how aware he was of what was going on in his own town. But here's what I do know. He was Swedish through and through, and like a true Swede, he wasn't loud about it. He quietly and steadfastly pursued his passions, playing trumpet, sailing, and building things over the course of his entire life, not because he was exceptionally talented or had any desire whatsoever to be praised for his work, but because it was important to him. He burned for it. And that, I think, is what it means to be Swedish, to be an eldhual. It means doing what you know you have to do without any expectation of personal reward, adhering to your moral code and your passions, and letting them guide you. And if that's the case, maybe we all have the capacity to be Swedish. This episode would not have been possible without the support of UCLA's Undergraduate Research Center and Startup UCLA, who generously funded my research. I'm also grateful to the people who lent their voices to this episode, Yazan Al-Rais, Gassana Mayra, Laura de Klerk, Lars Megan Kalfos, Linda Kaplan, Hans Ulvebro, and the refugees and asylum seekers who shared their stories with me at Stadlet. The English-speaking voices you heard as part of this episode were provided by Holt Alden, Daniel Klaps, Ben Gerber, Katie Linder, Ocean O'Reilly, Gracie Phillips, and Steve Wyman. Thanks, as always, to UCLA Radio for lending me access to their recording equipment and their expertise, and Kasia Kuzmala-Dalbeck, who composed our theme. Additional music in this episode was provided by Blue Dot Sessions and Vortex from the Free Music Archive. The Swedish Fika song is by Go Royal and is featured in their viral YouTube video. Global Voices is a production of The Generation, UCLA's foreign affairs magazine, and the Berkel Center at UCLA. To see more of our work, please visit the-generation.net. Thank you for listening. <laughs>